practice Hey everybody, welcome to Practice Makes Practice, the podcast. Today I have on the show Ron Moore. Ron Moore was the chair of the design department at the Creative Circus for the past 30 years or so. And he is, <laughs> he's recently um, enjoying... It felt like Yeah, it. yeah. Um, <laughs> recently enjoying new pursuits currently and we wanted to get him on the show to chat with him about his views on design practices the world different philosophies and fun stuff so here we are ladies and gentlemen this is ron moore ron if you could say hello hello everyone hello everyone this <laughs> yes i am ron moore ron is more less is somebody else. <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> There's a designy thing. It's so designy and so comparative, honestly. And that's really how it goes. And also, uh, I'm Christopher Knowles, the executive director of Practice Makes Practice. So uh, we've already talked a little bit about it, but, uh, you know, Practice Makes Practice is an organization that is very, very interested in the power of a mindful design practice and and all the different ways that that can look and feel and create impact and create joy. So, you know, I'd love to start today talking about, you know, how would you define your practice for us, for the listeners? What are you doing right now? Well, I'll tell you. Um... I'm apparently still in transition from from one thing to another, trying to figure out what it is that I am I'm practicing. I uh, am freelancing, mm-hmm. but you know, if you're not doing any work, are you really freelancing, or should I just hang out at the gym? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I used to freelance in Portland, Oregon, and it was kind of like that. You saw all the freelancers in the gym. <laughs> and the freelancers and the freelancers were in great shape. Um, so anyway, actually, what I'm doing right now is uh, that agonizing process of updating my website mm-hmm. and curating and culling and editing and presenting stuff, sending it out there to get some feedback, and then deciding whether I want to listen to them or not. Mm-hmm. So now I'm in the position that I guess our students used to be in when they would hear me say stuff. Should I really listen? Do I care? Does that apply to me? Mm. Is that what I really want to do? So I'm, um, I guess, getting my shingle ready to be hung out on the side of the building. That's wonderful. And I, I think the the thing about that um, is in a sense, like, a lot of people are going through some major transitions right now anyway. So I don't think it's strange to feel like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to present myself, how to figure out what my practice is right now, you know, in, in yeah. reaction maybe to new demands, new flavors, new uh, feelings um, in, in the world. So... You know, the other thing, though, that that brings up for me that I'm interested in, it it's funny how you jumped right into sort of this, like, how do I present myself professionally? How does your practice maybe extend beyond just that that idea alone, like being a freelancer and a freelance graphic designer? Is that kind of where where you call? Are you like creative direction? Yeah. Graphic designer? Well, in some places I've said I'm a... I'm all those things, mm-hmm. um, a creative director and a senior designer and a typographer and an illustrator. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, 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 and a creative. Yeah. And just that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and just that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of the buckshot approach, I guess, in one thinking, but I'm also kind of torn because I have always liked doing logos and they're pretty simple to me mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I like about them but the, the hard part is making them look simple and awesome and like oh my god how could it be any other way but uh oh and also the file size is really small <laughs> you know yeah so, yeah that's always awesome and I, 
<laughs> yeah, and I don't have to hire any other vendors or you know mm-hmm. cinematographers and video editors and and then animators to do anything. It's like I uh, just do my thing, and <clears throat> it kind of uh, serves a a singular solo reclusive artist pretty well, I think. Yeah, to do that kind of thing. What is it about logos beyond this file size that <laughs> is it is it the pursuit of clarity? Is it such a precision of form? Like, what is it about it specifically that you think? Because that that definitely is a very specific output, like a logo, being a logo it designer. Is. Yeah. I think that it's kind of challenging because it is sort of a multi-level uh, project that has multiple boxes that need to be ticked. Mm-hmm. That clarity and simplicity, and it's very reductive, but it also has to have enough in there, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of a weird, weird line to, to walk. Uh, it has to have the right personality, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Although I'm I'm probably going to opt for more personality rather than less in today's age of uh, over over bland yeah. blending, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the blandification of stuff. But also, I think it needs to um, perhaps not give away the time period that it was designed in, and it ought to have a shelf life of about well, maybe hopefully, depending upon the brand, ten years or so. Wow. So they're not always redoing it. Right. You know? right. Otherwise, people kind of like, wait, wait, is this a ripoff? Is this a knockoff company? Is this an imitation? Hmm. Uh, can I rely on them anymore? You know, if they keep changing, maybe they can't decide what they want to do. Hmm. Logos are challenging because of all that kind of stuff. So there's, you know, some uh, interesting contemporary thinking around identity, you know, like flexible yeah. identity or what is identity or does right. identity even require like logos now? Is it other things? Um, what is your relationship to that? Because with like a 10 year shelf life, which is super interesting, just talk to us about that a little bit. Well, I, I do love a sort of a dynamic logo. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there have been a lot of universities and art colleges and stuff that have done that sort of uh, thing where there's sort of a framework or a template that sort of looks like a classic logo, but then there's these elements that flit around and fly in and out and mm. don't fit in the in the framework. I mean, a, a big giant company that did something sort of like that was AOL. I was just thinking that. The, oh man, I was the yeah the typeface that some I don't know receptionist scrolled and found, and then they put all the objects that you could search behind it. Yeah, or something which is kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah. And then, and then I think logos, you almost have to start thinking about the animation possibilities of logos these days, given short attention spans and attention getting devices. And instead of shiny things, it's just stuff that moves that gets people's attention. So, you know, I call it a logo, but it may be an animation of some sort of simplicity and message that serves as a logo. Yeah. Um, and I think that's pretty cool and kind of fun. Absolutely. Oh, but wait! Uh, but before I forget, uh, I used to <laughs> I used to love when MTV first started. Oh yeah, <laughs> they were so schizo. I know, <laughs> and totally, totally ADD uh, to the to an extreme. Mm-hmm. It's like every time MTV came up on their screen, it was something different, and it was twitchy and fuzzy and furry, and then it was spongy and fishy and slimy. It was it was fun. it was a lot of fun, super fun. And you know, I yeah. grew up, and I kind of missed that. I do too. I grew up. I was born in the 80s and completely like came into being during the early 90s, you know, and it was a really cool time in design. You know, the grunge era was really big at that at that period. And I remember designers like David Carson, for instance, that would just completely do the opposite of what Swiss design tells you to do. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Somehow it worked. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I loved some of the, the fun and the spirit and sort of the that finding that edge. You know, what is the edge uh, that was going on with things like the MTV identity? And it was just fun because it was almost like you were witnessing a person trying on shoes. You were like, does this work? I don't know. Does this work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So like we were always kept kind of like uh, in suspense. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think that was some of his appeal, too. It's like, what's he going to do next? Yeah. And what's it going to look like? Uh, so there was a huge amount of, I think, uh, naivete, but also attitude 
in David Carson's approach because he's, yeah, he wasn't trained. Yeah. You know, through all the academic junk, just whatever felt good. Um, and I just started following him on Instagram and it's been kind of trippy. Oh, it's like um, a time warp. <laughs> it is. It is him and Chris, a- Chris Ashworth, mm-hmm. who were similar, you know, the destruct or not destructive, grungy, uh, deteriorated type, the very, 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 very accidental and manipulated in a, in an old fashioned organic way, using exactos to cut stuff up and scotch tape and then electrical tape and then actually scanning all that stuff. It's been kind of interesting. I mean, when I grew up, it was kind of the sixties thing. And I was just fascinated by the mm, psychedelic art stuff. Definitely. Um, huge impact there and big 12 inch record covers. Oh, so yeah. awesome. Totally. Just, I, I would just spend time at the record store flipping through those things and just looking at the pictures and the type. And it was, it was slightly bigger than your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you kind of had to get into it. Absolutely. It was very um, immersive an experience. Nowadays, you know, if I'm looking at a little on iTunes or whatever, that little thumbnail of the CD cover or something's like, eh. you know, it's just not as impressive. No, it's not. So talk to me a little bit about that. So did, first off, is that, are those the experiences that brought you into contact with starting to contemplate what design was like, what was that? When do you think you really like clicked where you were like, Oh, design is like a thing and I can do that. <laughs> um, I think I was probably kind of young, but probably, you know, high school or early high school. Um, my mom remembers a conversation with me that I don't remember, but talking about, stuff on the side of the big trucks going down the highway. Mm. Um, whether it has pictures or symbols in it or type or whatever, who's the truck belong to and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and, and at that time I didn't really have an interest in it. Maybe cause it was ugly and stupid looking. So um, your mom was <laughs> pointing this out to you though. She was like, look at that logo well, she, on the truck. <laughs> yeah. How do you think that got there? Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He, um, um, and I think my parents recognized that I was a creative person because mm. I drew and pencils and cars and stuff like that. But um, uh, got into it a little bit in high school, although my high school didn't have any art classes really to speak of at all. Yeah. Um, and I actually wanted to, I went to architecture school. So I started there mm-hmm. kind of designing stuff and that sort of, I guess introduced me to design, but it was very experiential stuff. You yeah. know, when you walk into a building, what does that feel right. like? And how do you know where to get in the building? And how does, how's all that planned and worked out? And how do you begin to manipulate people in a way that's informative and helpful and affects their moods and their emotions and all of that through materials and space? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's where it started. But then I started taking tangents and then I started thinking about, Oh, how do you present the building and what does that look like? And how do you organize information? Mm. Um, which to me is a, a big sort of under acknowledged problem that graphic designers have is if you're given a whole bunch of information, how do you organize it? So it doesn't look intimidating and daunting. And how, how do you trick people into wanting to read a, a big giant phone book or something? Yeah. Or like, how do you predict or even into it? like somebody's like where would their attention need to go first through all of this content? Like it's kind of interesting that way as well, you know? Right. So I've always kind of likened a web experience to a a building experience. Like Mm. how do you know where to go? Yeah. Is it, is it a, like in a museum, do I want to go look at the really big exhibit or do I need to just go find the bathroom? (laughs) Um, So, where on the website is that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, and so I'm entering the website by entering the building. And then I've always kind of made that analogy to people when they want to know then, well, what does the coder do? Mm-hmm. And he just kind of makes sure the building stands up and doesn't collapse on people. I mean, do you feel like he's um, the engineer? <laughs> kind of, oh, yeah. Like, he's a civil engineer for to sure. To the architect. But, yeah. 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 To the architect's role of... Mm-hmm esthete and behavioral manipulator and 
all that kind of stuff. You know, the architect makes sure that you know how to move through the building and that there's signage and wayfinding. Some of it obvious, some of it suggested, and some of it made up. Right. <laughs> or something, no, seriously. You know, that you that you just kind of learn the system when you walk into the building and say, oh, there's a there's a major space, there's a minor space, there's an in-between space, mm-hmm. there's the bookstore, there's the bathroom, there's the shop, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's really interesting. Along the spectrum of like the potential of what design can actually afford is you've got one side, which is, you know, um, organization, predicting user needs, content management, really, (laughs) you know, uh, like there's that side. And then there's the expressive side, the side that is about the emotionality, the, you know, the the tone, the like, how do you make it human? And in any given project, there can be many, many correlations between these two extremes of the spectrum. So like in your experience, both in teaching and in practicing, how have you, how, how can you gauge like what's, you know, what, how does that work? Well, uh, if you have a real client, (laughs) there's that, (laughs) um, (laughs) there's that. I think it starts, I mean, to me, sometimes it starts with a conversation with them and I, and I've always kind of involved them in the process of figuring out where they want to go and how they want to get there and what is the objective, not just sort of marketing-wise, but in terms of developing a personality mm-hmm. uh, or the flavor of that experience mm. for the user, not just for them. Because, yeah, I'd like people to think I'm cool, but if no one thinks I'm cool, that I'm not cool, and no one's going to believe it, if I tell people that I'm cool, what I'm not cool. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I, like, I feel like we see. It's like, giving, it's like giving yourself a nickname. It's like a load of crap. It is. I feel like we see brands yeah. do this all the time, too. Oh, my God. Oh, That's yeah. a whole other tangent. Oh, yeah. But like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to me, uh, I don't know. I feel like the process is. I don't, and I'm also not one to kind of claim that I know everything, mm-hmm. especially because I might have misunderstood what the client said and what they want. So mm-hmm. I believe in sort of showing lots of options. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that's a mistake, but it's almost like, well, it makes them part of the creative team rather than, you know, a person who's outsiders. It, it eliminates that us versus them thing. Sure, sure. Like, uh, clients are clients. What do they know? I mean, they know their business, but they, they aren't in the, design world of kind of communicating through emotions and colors and scale and what are all the conceptual stuff that we supposedly have at our fingertips and are trained in. Mm -hmm. So, but I do think it's um, important that design should ultimately not just be for the the sole designer always. Right. It's like, it has the relationship to the client, but I've always also said it's, you're really designing for the client's client. Right, right. It's like, that's fine if the client is like obsessed with the color blue, but his, the people that that client is trying to reach may hate blue. <laughs> you know, like, well, I don't right. know. Or yeah, it may be the wrong color. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. what the client wants to do. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's a big kind of conversation about some of those decisions and choices and, and the steps and how to get there. Uh, some of those are kind of tough. Mm-hmm. Um, you also don't want the designer at some point to in that relationship to just kind of give up and say, okay, fine. Just tell me what you want. No. Um, uh, although sometimes that is the, admittedly you have to end the suffering, <laughs> get out of it, get your paycheck, give them the invoices as soon as you can, hope they honor it. Yeah. Um, and go on to somebody that's going to be a little more hmm. collaborative, I guess, because collaboration is, is a huge part of all of it. I think. And so the thing that is funny to me is that despite all good intentions, there always seems to be this sort of client-designer dichotomy where it always seems to err on the negative side. Even in, you know what I mean? And it's like, Mm -hmm. what's going on with, let's say, mm, there's a cultural issue there in terms of just understanding of design, but also understanding of clients, there's uh, a cultural understanding of like, well, 
you know, money isn't play. I'm going to speak for myself a little bit, but like my interest in the potential of what design can accomplish, it, I never go, it makes money. I, I can say right. it creates value and you can right. define that value in so many different ways, which I'd love to talk about in a little bit, but like, how have you dealt with like, just like the kind of the, the cheapness of making it about money? I, if that's not an ironic statement, but right. like, you know, like, <laughs> um, and how in your, in your navigation of what you're doing, have you made sure that your practice does not just come down to like, I, I got to get paid. Like, what do you do? Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Um, one of the things that I've been, been thinking about lately uh, that I think I've actually thought about a lot for a long time is um, kind of making things better than they were. Mm, mm-hmm. So even if it means if I see a scrap of paper on the floor, I'll pick it up and throw it away if I know it's a piece of trash. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that sort of improves the world a little bit. I think there's just so much noise and visual noise and noise of media and technology and pages are packed with information. I, I always try to make the, make the world a little better place, I guess, by <laughs> taking noise out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by trying to leave it a little neater than I found it. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps by helping somebody out. And if I'm trying to help someone out by doing a logo or some other design project, a poster, illustration, or whatever. There may be a conversation during the process where we have to almost go back to the beginning and say, well, what is it you want to do again, and why do you want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? Yeah, Yeah, and they'll have to try to, without being an ass about it, say, well, because I'm trying to, to help you navigate the noise by making your project stand out from all the others rather than be just like all the others. Sure. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this reassessment of objective, which is almost like telling the client, it's okay. You're going to have to do something different. And trust me, if it's crafted well, it's believable Yeah. <laughs> in a way. So don't worry about whether it's comfortable to you or your spouse or whatever. Because hopefully you've also done your market research yeah. and can position in that sort of way too. I loved when you said, even if I pick up a piece of trash, because what you were aligning that to is like a, that still is in a sense like an active design. So something that's really interesting to me is I have this feeling that in a sense, like everyone is a designer, you know, that like at some core level, because human beings have desire, you know, that we wake up and we're like, I want that. I want to be that. I need more of that, whatever it is. And it's like, it's always going to be there. And I think the difference between levels of suffering are the people that find ways to align with their desire or people that don't find ways to align with their desire, you know? And so uh, of course, when I'm thinking about like what design ultimately is, I think, okay, it's, it's gotta be a process of saying, I'm going into things with an intention and I, I need to wind up with something that is a result of that intention that is usually driven by, I think this thing will make me happier. I don't think a lot of people design with like, let me do something that's going to make things more miserable. Um, even if it's like a really bizarre, uh, perspective that like in their psychosis, they're like, yeah, this is better, even though it may be like worse for everybody else. (laughs) But how do you feel about that? Like, so picking up the piece of paper improves the world a little bit. So do you feel like, what are the ways that design can improve communities? And what are the ways that people that wouldn't define themselves as designers, let's say professionally, what do you think that looks like? How would you speak to that? Well, um, well, I think a lot of people start out as creatives anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, if unless somehow they they skip their childhoods and just pop out as <laughs> robots, a, a, adults. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but I think that, that we all start out imaginative and, um, if people have been told over the years that they can't draw or that they're not creative or whatever, um, they, they still dream stuff. And if you can kind of reassure them that their dreams, as weird as they are, is almost a creative um, document, mm-hmm. then they're creative. Yes. Uh, and also, I've, I've thought that, well, you dress yourself, right? <laughs> uh, isn't that sort of a creative expression? Even if it is, uh, you know, khakis and midriffs or whatever. Um, <laughs> it, it's still a communication. Uh, you know, I wanna, no, I know what you mean. It is. A, it is a communication, and it's a sort of. You know, some people, even if they uh, have all black turtlenecks in their closet, have still made that creative decision to limit their palette. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting sort of design parameter to embrace it as a challenge or embrace it so that your life will be simpler. And you put a sentence together. So that's a creative output. Mm. So I think there's ways that even supposed non-creative people can be reminded of their creativity and their possibility as creatives mm-hmm. with just some of these things that they do every day and choices that they make and and also to not be judgmental about it too yeah yeah you look you look like an accountant but but that's okay um but that's cool <laughs> yeah. you know the world has to have accountants thank god i don't want to go to jail <laughs> um <laughs> yeah you know for tax for tax fraud or forgetting um to file or something um, so I appreciate those people and their and their interests and what jazzes them. And in some ways, kind of using accountants again because it's convenient. Mm-hmm. The numbers they love it when it lines up and when everything works out, and <clears throat> that you know those systems are being satisfied. And so I think designers feel the same sort of satisfaction and like composition or composition or systematic approach to stuff. Yeah. If there's architecture or flow or behavior or page-to-page tangible or page-to-page clicking, mm-hmm. that there's a certain satisfaction in making the world neater. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a neatness involved. And as much as I hate that some people think designers just make things look good, I think there's a certain satisfaction in making things look good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we can, because we use our senses to take in information around us, you know, making things look good or a, a, a striving for some kind of beauty through organization, um, I think is noble because, you know, you can't, it's hard to divorce that need. It's a human need in a way, you know, like. Oh yeah, I think so too. It's like, that's why, that's why we love faces. They're symmetric. Exactly. We look for faces. We look for eyes, you yeah. know, in everything around us. Cause it gives us a sense of like belonging. I think when you talked about systems and I, you know, I'm, I'm with you. That's like, you know, I always laugh that like artists and designers always bring up the accountant as like literally like the anti, the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> yeah. um, and in effect, you know, it's, it's so you're right. Cause it's all coming from the same need and it's just being expressed a little bit differently, you know, cause we live in uh, a chaotic eternity you know like this this universe you know nobody nobody really knows like every little nuance like it's basically we're just organizing chaos to try to make sense of it to make some kind of reality you know um and that again that's that's sort of designed to me isn't it like you're like it (laughs) is but i was but i was also just thinking too about kind of the process that a designer goes through which when some people grip too tightly on the outcome, then there's no room for playing and experimenting and mm-hmm. discovery and surprises and unexpected sort of solutions. So when you think you know what you want it to be, that's when things get a little little bit of a bummer. Well, and that actually touches on, you know, the reason uh, the organization is named Practice Makes Practice is that very concept that for some reason we were indoctrinated with this notion of like practice makes perfect. And yeah, um, yeah. I think that's, I think that's really toxic as like a, as a concept to live by. 
Well, I think it's been uh, I think it's been born out in the education system when you get educated to take a multiple choice test where the outcomes are kind of given, narrowed down, and expected. It's like, well, where's the fun in that? Yeah, and it doesn't feel like genuine learning to say like, okay, I've you know, I've I've met an objective. It's like I've always yeah. felt like learning is interpretive, you know, and it it's like, well, the value in learning is how to absorb information and make it useful for you, not saying I know a thing and someone can see that. But also, like you yeah. just said, I think that um, in the pursuit of our intentions, you know, like so we talk about design as a system for pursuing intentions I think you're right that what happens is people get so fixated on this like one particular outcome that they narrow the the window of possibility down to the like basically trying to shoot the universe through a straw and it it creates a lot of pain and a lot of dissatisfaction and anxiety I think during a project or during a process of like getting there. So it's not about perfection it's about it's about the the presence of the practice itself. And finding that sweet spot to let the 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 best result show itself in a way. Like it just has to be more about like connecting with something that feels good, not even logically always makes sense. Right. That's the hard part. Yeah. Uh, especially when you want to rely on your experience, which may be things that you like in the past and and if you like a whole bunch of a certain thing, then that's comfortable to you and you know that you like that stuff. Mm -hmm. But then that can be a little dangerous too, because if that's brought into the, to the mix, especially on the, I think creative people, they still have their crutches, things they like to go to. Yeah. Um, that make their work recognizable. But then I think the client uh, is even probably a little more gun shy about accepting something uncomfortable to them. Um, that they're probably a little well they're not as exposed perhaps in in the visual stuff or conceptual stuff to be able to make that leap um but if a client really loves the unexpected process like, let's just see what happens boy that's a good one i'll tell you what's super hard is from my experience and observations is that man just on on any on any side of the table letting go of your ego and your feelings to just be okay, almost like be Buddhist about the outcome. Just like, don't yeah, flow with it. Kind of like, you know, flow with it. It's like, or like surfing. Mm. You know, you can't go where you want to go. You have to go where the wave is going to take you. Um, so people get in the way all the time. It's like, well, this isn't going to be my portfolio. Or <laughs> it's, you know, it's not the colors I want or this isn't something that I'm familiar with, or the person doesn't seem to be listening to me. I think that um, egos and feelings can really muck up a pretty good project and potential. And then sometimes I'll admit, um, if it doesn't seem to be going well as a designer, for me, then I'll just kind of reassess inside my own head. What are my new objectives? How can I get satisfaction out of some project that suddenly has taken a new turn that I wasn't expecting and that isn't going to be satisfying for me based on my original thought. How can I make it satisfying now? Mm. And so being flexible and having a good sense of humor about it and still hopefully realizing that you may be helping somebody get something done. But I think when, when the whole thing is started as a collaboration if, it, if each party is really open to collaborating mm -hmm. and communicating, then I think it helps. You can't shut down and you can't just, but you also have to be aware of how you're saying things. You can't say things that are going to shut somebody else down and make them not want to participate anymore. So communication, and apparently lately that, that seems to be a universal problem, is how people say things. Yeah, I, I was speaking about that with somebody that like it's actually also our responsibility to make sure that we really really listen and that like yeah you can't always just say well you know the client doesn't get it it's like that's not that's not helpful <laughs> yeah. like you know yeah. it's, 
you can grow. I think what I'm saying is like, I think designers can grow and expand just as much as a client can grow and expand. If you're you're open to that being like a really delicious reward of being a designer, you know? So it's like, yeah, you're drawn into being a designer because you have a particular interest in maybe, um, you know, shape, color, type, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. However, I think the interest behind the interest could be like, you know, I get to work on different content all the time. I get to meet different people all the time. I get to uh, encounter different perspectives all the time. You know, I get to connect with things that aren't just in my own immediate periphery. And I think like, that's where I find a lot of joy as well. And it's like, yeah, you know, like I can let go of this color on this project because mm-hmm. like, <laughs> because this is going to be fun. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think fun, uh, I feel like you have a lot of fun in your work. And I kind of want to just talk a little bit about like fun. Like, how does fun <laughs> drive the bus? Like, why are there not? Why is there not more emphasis on having fun in projects? Like, and I I don't necessarily mean just like wacky experimental fun, but I mean just an attitude yeah, of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I forget who it was. Some famous designer, I think, kind of said, "You have a dialogue with with an audience somewhere out there." And you want to give them enough enough information so uh, they feel smart and proud of themselves for sort of getting the joke or being able to see in a, you know inside that thing with another level of interpretation or mm-hmm. wit or feeling or something so so that it resonates a little bit more rather than being a simple superficial sort of visual exercise mm-hmm. um, that someone just kind of skims over that there's the literal meaning, but then there's this other meaning that kind of catches their attention or catches their eye and oh, that's clever. That's a neat way to say that or do that thing. That's unexpected. Yeah. Um, but I get it and I like it and it seems appropriate. So trying to weasel some of those things into uh, design projects is always fun. Maybe a little tougher with logos, but yeah, things like posters and covers yeah. and you know the more editorial versions of stuff, you can you can put it in there, yeah, pretty well, yeah, um, and sometimes kind of easily. It's, it's almost and to me, it's an inherent built-in part of that project's sort of mm-hmm. objective and outcome. Like, well, there's got to be something, especially in an editorial um, situation. There has to be something sort of insightful and clever and smart that the audience will look at me. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Rather than, eh. <laughs> you know, that's the worst response. Meh. Yeah, that's absolutely not what you want. <laughs> Ugh, no. I, um, yeah. I, like, yeah, exactly. Like, I have felt that, like, you want love or hate, you want no neutrality ever. You do not want that right. middle ground. Right. <laughs> so I would prefer that. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So sometimes that's so, you know, as as a teacher, I would sometimes err on the side of um going big, I guess, or avoiding choosing the option that's perhaps uh dangerous or makes some people nervous. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, a video that a student worked on for a competition and it was for condoms and I forget what it was, but the the student was so embarrassed and uncomfortable about showing this video on her website. And I thought, you've got to put it on there. <laughs> also because, also because a lot of people really liked it. Ironically, um, they were responding positively to it. And I said, well, why would you want to not show something that people think is really cool yeah and what did you so find she out she kind of did well she did put it on there and um sure enough um a lot of people continued to like it so i thought well good thing you put it on there <laughs> you know, and put it out there so kind of be confident in the work yeah and i kind of feel like and then and i kept later um telling some students like Look, if it's crafted and presented really well, that's that makes it believable. Yeah. If the if the idea is outrageous, 
or silly because there's been a ton of silly stuff mm-hmm. done. I mean, those are the Super Bowl ads we remember is the silly ones. Yeah. Um, it's like, thank God they did that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't even sit down to watch the ads. We'd go, I don't know, pay bills. Yes. <laughs> and then come back, exactly. and then come back when the game comes on. Yeah. Um, and those are the things that have been artistically throughout history have been the things that have been noteworthy and memorable is because it's been out of step for its time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can go through bands and rock music and painting throughout history. And, you know, it's the person that did the wrong thing, I guess at the right time that, that we all talk about now. And his paintings go for millions. Yeah. I mean, do you, I'm curious if you think that the key there is that these people had very, very powerful uh, intuitive skills. And then they, they were willing to say, you know, there's like a skill set where it's like, yes, this is what's happening right now. Yes, this is a trend, but I really believe in this and I'm doing it anyway. Like, is that something you've seen in students as well? You probably also see a lot of fear in the classroom. There's more of that. Than yeah. Anything. There's there's more of fear of failure. Yeah. Um, than of doing something um, creative, which I don't know, so frustrated me. And why do you think that's so prevalent? Because uh, you know, I I also have taught a lot as well, and I agree. Like one of the major things I I witnessed was just fear and anxiety and. Um, yeah. And it seemed to be the norm, not the, um, you know, not yeah, not the exception. Right. And and there was always like one or two students that, for some reason, there was like they had a connection to what they found joyful about what they were doing, and their mm-hmm. work was always surprising. Their work was always fun, and they never took themselves seriously. That was the other thing I found amazing. I think that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, they're not too precious about it all, and they're not attaching themselves mm-hmm. to to that work or the process. Really, um, in terms of whether somebody likes my work, doesn't mean that they—that's how they perceive me. Right. It's not my uh, identity. I'm just making shit, and throwing it against the yeah. wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> which has always been lately my approach in my own work, but also in what I try to encourage in other people, like. Who knows what's going to happen, but let's try it and let's see what happens. And why are you so concerned about what I think should be done mm-hmm. when it should be you or or actually not you, but the project itself? What do you think is right for this this project? So, yeah, it's it's uh, I don't uh, don't know if it's, you know, a generational thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I might like to blame a lot of it on that. Um, you know, the way kids are brought up or educated and the kind of culture they've been brought up in and the kind of things that they're exposed to, um, perhaps where daring isn't rewarded as much as it should be. Yeah. Especially if they're not artistic or creative or, um, and when I say artistic or creative, I don't even mean that it's good, but if they just, you know, as little kids have been encouraged to make stuff and do things and, play around and who cares you know mom will stick it on the fridge anyway perhaps but i read a, a great quote from um vonica yeah lately who actually said uh, and i'm paraphrasing wildly um <laughs> he said who cares if it's good just do something yeah <laughs> um, um because his his argument was if you do something because you want to or like to then it kind of puts you in a meditative state. Mm-hmm. You get out of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, you may solve some other problem because you're in this meditative state that has nothing to do with your drawing or painting or whatever, which you wouldn't have figured out had you not done this drawing or painting. But also by doing this drawing or painting, you may figure out what you like and how to, how to manage and control the materials and the media a little bit. You may discover that you like it and practice it some more. So, you know, it's practicing practice in a way. Yes, absolutely. Um, which then you you get good at something and you may get good at it in your own way, in your own voice, mm-hmm. rather than some prescribed or predetermined way. Right. Some like comparative um, analysis. Yeah. Right. right. 
so so then by doing something without even trying, you did something. You got good at something. Um, but even then, it's kind of like by accident, you got good at something through repetition mm-hmm. or, you know, revisiting this thing over and over and over again. Um, and who cares if it's good? I mean, com- who's compared to what? Exactly. So that's that's been a wild one. Um Oh, and maybe it just made you calmer anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in this day and age to just sit and draw for an hour. Um, don't worry. And about how it. does that, yeah. And like how, in the classroom, you know, I'd say the classroom of life, but also the classroom, the yeah. actual technical classroom. How do you see people waking up to that more? Well, I would always try to encourage the more unexpected. Yeah solutions but because they were unexpected well and it Um, kind of flips the logic on its head because it's like you thought this was going to be like what i want because you know it's kind of a predictable safe place um no (laughs) yeah fooled you (laughs) because this one uh because it's so unexpected it tickles my imagination more Mm -hmm. and and i find that more interesting an experience than something that looks like it would be a solution already. Yeah. So what do you think the world would look like if more people approach their day like this? <laughs> I'm curious. Um, I was just starting to think that maybe they would, that maybe they would listen more mm-hmm. Maybe, 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 maybe there would be a, a little more gentler feeling and empathy for other people. Um, I think that's another attribute that might be encouraged. Mm-hmm. And editing is a huge part of the design process too. Yeah, uh, taking away unnecessariness. So, oh gosh, Amazon comes it seems daily. Um, and I can't believe how much waste is in a, in a package. Oh, I know. Oh, um, so that's a little disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people might be hopefully a little more thoughtful about the choices they make and whether whether they really need something right now um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Is that is that something you need or want? And is that need, you know, biological or medical or cultural? Mm-hmm. And then kind of just... All those, all those choices. Um, I think if people were a little more particular about choices, then maybe that would help. I don't know. Well, do you think there? Do you do you think people are making these random choices because they they haven't? There's something that they haven't like consciously aligned with in their life, right? Like to me, a little bit interesting. I hope I'm not making generalization, but it's almost like the more joyful someone yeah. seems the less stuff they have around them. It's like, they just don't. They're just happy to be alive. They're happy to be alive. (laughs) And they're really good at living in the dream. They're really good at like living in perpetual potential. And they're, you know, sort of existentially just throwing spaghetti against the wall. And they're like, this is great. You know. Oh, I remember having a conversation with a copywriter a long time ago um, who we, we hit upon this sort of idea that because of our jobs, I mean, she was in advertising copyright and I was a designer and we're always kind of, what if I did this? And what if I did this in terms of a project? But then I think uh, if you start expanding that vision to consider your life, mm-hmm. what if I moved? What if I broke up? What if I didn't? Uh, you know, put on pants today. What if? Um, <laughs> yes. What if I? What if I sold my car? How would I get around? You know that there's a lot of what ifing that I think um, creatives in the marketing world think about because what if um, to them means is this choice? Is this new choice going to make things better? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it was like, like, well, what if we didn't do an ad, but did a um, an installation piece? Is that going to make it better? Is that going to, you know, uh, improve the client's 
Um, R-O- ROI or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it does There's kind of, some it industry does kind of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks for bringing this back around to reality. <laughs> um, but, but it does kind of work out that way. It's like, but, but I think a creative person is like, does this improve things? Does it give us joy? Yeah. Yeah. In addition to improving the world <laughs> and making things better and helping the client solve their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a ton of what ifing that goes on. Definitely. And uh, uh, and I think that a creative person just kind of, what if I got a chair? What if I got rid of the chair? Um, <laughs> you know, what if I what if I didn't buy a chair? Could I still, you know, um, live like Thoreau? Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> can I go into like a romantic <laughs> epic in my mind and do it this way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Am I still cool? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's an interesting sort of sort of exercise to go through outside the, the design process in terms of life and living and behavior. And, yeah. Well, and, and again, uh, my, all that my stuff. feeling is in a sense that is a design process like that, like that, just that human thing where it's like, I want this. I don't want that. I want that. I do want that. I, Less of this, more of that. I mean, to me, that's still designing on a level because you're making decisions, oh, you know, about effectively how to curate your life. And I think that the more people, I think people are, I think people are thinking less about the benefit of that decision, though. Oh, exactly. Well, they're not seeing it through in a. Yeah, it's like knee jerk. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah, it's like right. I want that now, and I have no idea what. But I want yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think they suffer a little bit because once they go, I want it, then they spend all their time noticing that it's not there. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, the, first off, the pr- reason you want it is probably because you think it'll make you happy, which is okay. But the journey yeah. to getting that thing is the thing that creates the happiness. Like, you know, you don't just snap your fingers and it shows up. I mean, because then you'd want something else. You know, your perspective would shift again and you'd want to go over here now, you know, like, so I think designing like and thinking about the choices we make and what we curate in our lives. I think some of the fun in that is is the stuff that happens on the way to getting the stuff, you know, like it's like that's the sweet stuff. It's like, oh, that's cool. I want to contemplate that. And then it's going to open up all these avenues for me, you know. Yeah. Um, so I've always sort of promoted the idea, well, of uh, the journey is the, is sort of the fun part. It's kind of nice when something is finally produced and and really great if everyone agrees that that is the best solution. But um, oh, there's so much just great stuff done um, during the process. All the other ideas and the weird iterations and some of that stuff is so juicy may not be right or appropriate, but it's so much fun. Um, and I always feel like that sort of has broadened my brain a little bit and hopefully the other person's brain too, so that they're more open to more options the next time something rolls around. I would agree. Like, I think it, it kind of kicks a process into another process, which is really exciting. Like, you yeah. know, and that's what's, what's been weird about doing, um, my own website. Yeah. Which is sort of, <laughs> I thought, I mean, I thought like I could use my blog as a website, but it shows a lot of the behind the scenes sort of warts and all stuff. Right. Uh, which I still am torn. I, I feel like there's so much value in that. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you're going to work with me, this is what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. All these, all these different ideas for one problem. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, my official, you know, business practice website, has to edit all that uh, to be a little more concise and efficient and still communicative. So I'm sort of torn because I love the process so much and would like to show somebody, well, this is what it's going to be like to work with me rather than here's what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really frustrating to me. Yeah. Cause you definitely want them to get a sense of the, like the actual, like when they, they hire you, 
they're hiring you because of the way that your mind works and your process, not because you have a selection of things on your website. So it's a very confusing right, way to right. show it, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's an ongoing conflict for me. Yeah. Have you launched? So I'm trying to mix it, mix it both. Have you launched the new site yet? Yeah, and it's still changing. Okay. You know, I'm still updating stuff and using some mock-ups now and getting all fancy schmancy and <laughs> um, <laughs> with some of those presentation shortcuts. But I'm also sort of torn between whether to use some of those or not use some of them for certain things, you know, and where to draw the line. And Because um, I, you know, back to logos again, mm-hmm. I, I just kind of love seeing logos in black and white. Um, but I know that some people like seeing them um, when they look like, 3D metallic wood, right? Or, or on a certain background, or with a certain texture, or uh, what does it look like? Letter pressed or embossed or something mm-hmm. um, in leather? Like, yeah, kinda. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's distracting, and sometimes I think it helps, but it's not going to help a shitty logo just because it looks like it's embossed in leather. You can't um, polish a turd. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. Um, or you can, but that's what you get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still a polished turd. It's very shiny. Yeah. Um, so the dialogue continues in my head and on my website about what to do. Mm-hmm. And just for the listeners, uh, what what is your website? What is the URL for them to check out? Oh, right. Oh yeah, you know, I knew that would. I knew that was coming. coming. I'm terrible at I'm terrible at self promotion, but here it goes. <laughs> Ronmore.design. Bam. <laughs> yep, that's what I do. I design stuff, and for for the warts and all, I'll go ahead and promote this. Uh, HeyThatTickles.com. Love that is the uh, entertainment stuff. That stuff's great. That's that's a sketches lot of and sketches all. and process. And oh God, yeah. Super super fun. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the juicier stuff. I think that's way more fun to look at, way more sort of just unexpected, unpredictable. Yep. Um, and it's one of those things where people can look at like a, a page of doodles and find all kind of stuff in there. Um, maybe it'll be helpful. Maybe it'll inspire them. Maybe it'll um, lower a bar in one category, perhaps, and raise a bar in another. Yeah, I would. I absolutely agree with that. And honestly. Uh, it's, it's just, you get a sense of the fun that you have on the blog. You know what I mean? Like in, in your work, that's really where it's like, I can see that this is an enjoyment, you know, to, um, and it's hilarious. Like some of the content and like (laughs) subject matter, you're just like, okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is it. Here it is. Oh, you know. Oh, it it is, it's been fun. And, um, yeah, sometimes I'll lie in bed thinking about things I need to do for my official website. And then also think that I would rather do some stuff for the Hey That Tickles blog, just because it's looser. Yeah. Um, and not as, I don't know, pressurized. And that's a very, very sweet thing. Um, it is. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes. But thanks for letting people know about that. Uh, I just, I always like making sure that anyone that's listening has an opportunity to check out what people are working on um, so they can connect all of your amazing thoughts to the work that you're producing or exploring either way you want to look at it. Um. <laughs> well, weirdly, I was, I always thought as a teacher, especially in a design school, I should still be making stuff and doing things. Yeah. Um, and there's some teachers I've looked for at other schools and I just couldn't find their websites or blogs or anything. Just, so I was wondering, what do they do? They're not, even, they're not even practicing practice. Yeah, exactly. And that's very strange to me. I agree. Because it's like, well, half of the teaching has to come from like ongoing experience and you're not yeah. really doing it. So, um, yeah. So how reliable are that? Right. And how does it actually get the classroom excited to do stuff, you know? So I have kind of a closing question that I feel like will open up a really, hopefully a really cool conversation, but um, do you have a favorite typeface? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or alternatively, what, you know, I know that typography is like another area of uh, 
interests of yours, you know? Uh, so what, yeah, yeah, for sure. what inspires you about typography specifically? And if you do have a favorite typeface, I'm sure we'd all love to know why that is so. Huh. Well, <clears throat> I've had a, um, a long interest in um, Futura mm -hmm. just because it's super clean, but it also has a bunch of different weights. Yes. Um, and, and actually the fatter it gets, the cartoonier it gets, but I love the light versions. Yeah. Um, but also kind of like Universe. Mm -hmm. Lately I've been into Universe a little bit more. Um, something about it's a little, a little bit quirkier. Future is almost too engineered and universe. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit more human interest in it <laughs> or something. Sure, sure. Um, but it has more modulation in the strokes um, than the Futura does. And also I've been using a lot of, I think it's Berkeley. Oh. No, Baskerville. 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 Yeah. Beautiful yeah. serif. Yeah, I like, yeah. Yep. And I really love the italics and the uh, ampersand in, in uh, Baskerville. And then I've been following a lot of uh, calligraphers on Instagram, uh, and just watching watching somebody draw letters is just super fascinating, soothing, and yeah. fascinating. Oh my God, their hand control is intimidating, but it's beautiful. Like Seth Lester is great. Cool, yeah. And there's a bunch of guys in Turkey of all places and uh, Asia that are really amazing. I can't think of their names right now. Are they working in like um, Arabic and like traditional like Japanese Chinese scripting and calligraphy or? Oh, they're, they're spelling in English. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was just curious. Yeah. And using, yeah. Um, but some of the Middle Eastern letter forms, the kind of Arabic stuff is just beautiful anyway. Sure, sure. Oh my gosh. I just love the strokes and it's so, and it almost feels, I guess what I'm liking about it is that it's, uh, done by hand it's obviously pen on paper it's immediate but it's also not computer generated there's something human about it even when there's a little hiccup in the stroke somewhere yeah it's like man that was perfect yeah yeah so i really love that kind of stuff absolutely um but i still i scroll through some items sometimes depending upon the job and there's i don't have a super huge go-to library of typefaces um, but I do love the possibility of some hand-done type and how that can be parlayed into something pretty powerful and loaded with personality that no one else can claim and yeah. no one else can can do. Um, so a lot of times I'm I'm trying to um, promote that sort of solution to somebody, especially in a logo mm -hmm. or logo type, mm -hmm. because it's going to be instantly unique. Absolutely, and like. How do you get clients to understand that a little bit? Um, just just on a side note, you know, because I know that's a, a struggle yeah. sometimes to get um, the typography alone and the typographic directions in a project to be approved um, can right. really be tough, uh, especially if more money's yeah. involved. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I, know. But <laughs> I think, uh, you know, making them and asking them perhaps point blank, who's your competition? And what do you like about their work or not like about their work? And then perhaps coming back at a later meeting with a mood board of here's what I think typographically based on your problem, what you're trying to present, your objective and who your target audience is, you know, those basic things. Here's what I think would be appropriate and cool in getting them on board and making them initial the mood board. <laughs> just <sign Yeah>. it. <laughs> saying, yes, I approve. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, and then coming back and showing them, you know, some period later, the original, you know, versions of your solution for their problem, yeah. you know, based on that mood board and stuff. So you're kind of leading them, holding their hand, baby stepping down into the deeper water. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And, I just think type by itself can have so much personality and so much um, power and emotion and just personality again, yeah. just choosing the right typeface is pretty key. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's one thing with educating people about how design can be effective. A lot of people I think go into design, like 
clients or people that don't do graphic design on a regular basis, they often think it needs to be this like over the top, highly illustrative thing to be effective. I'm like, yeah. oh no, you, honestly, if you get the right typeface on there, 90% of the work is done. The, <laughs> you know? the heavy lifting is yeah, done. Like everything yep. else after this is cake. But like, if we can get that type correct, then, then yeah. we're in a, we're sailing. And you're good. Yeah. You're wearing a good spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think we're about at the end of time getting close. Is there anything you would want to tell uh, any of the listeners just about uh, developing their own voice, anything else, anything at all that you'd want to share, tidbits from um, your life experience so far? Well, um, I'm still a, a, a pretty curious imitator. So I like to try to see if I can do something like somebody else. Um, sort of get into their head how they did something, um, especially design-wise or mm-hmm. art-wise. Mm-hmm. So I think I think imitating is still, even if you get your golden years and long in the tooth, it's fun to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of gets you out of your head. So keep your eyes open. Also, I I get a little annoyed, I guess, when designers think that what they do is super special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, oh my God. Mm. Because there's so much diversity in the design world yeah. uh, in terms of uh, media and dimension, the kind of problems, kind of projects, mm-hmm. style is a whole other thing. Yeah. It's like there's so much acceptability in the design world. You can't afford to be all snotty about it. Uh, just make it harder, harder for people to like designers or want to be designers um, if you have that kind of attitude. So, yeah. you know, be gracious and generous definitely give your files away give them all away <laughs> open source <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. that's also extremely buddhist yeah. i love that it's like create your mandala yeah. and destroy it <laughs> yep and then blow yeah, it yeah exactly <laughs> blow it away uh well this was really awesome this was fun um it was fun thanks so yeah, much yeah 100 percent um everybody please make sure to check out ron's work um, you know, and, and if anyone has any desire to connect with Ron, either through uh, hiring him to do work <laughs> or any more questions, you know, <laughs> or just chatting, or some, just more, chatting yeah, some more, to, you know, we're here to, to talk definitely. And you can send, um, send us a note. Um, but we appreciate you tuning in, uh, for this episode and, uh, uh, we're, uh, signing out. I think that's a very official radio <laughs> Is it at a, a radio ending? Yeah. I'm signing out. <laughs> <laughs>